Hello, I'm Mihir Bode and welcome to our first 2023 Three Old Hacks podcast, The Mince Pies Have Gone, although this year my wonderful wife uh, did not cook them. It came from Gales, good but nothing to match Caroline's and also quite expensive. But we did not start a fire to light the Christmas pudding as we did one year at my sister-in-law's place. I'm joined by my two great friends and wonderful journalists, David Smith, the economics editor of the Sunday Times and political commentator, Nigel Dudley, whose stories of mince pies and Christmas cakes um, the nation had been waiting to hear all these weeks. David? Yes, I did set fire to the um, Christmas pudding, but not to the, not to the house, uh, fortunately. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't set fire to anything, but uh, my wife did make the mince and the pastry and... Uh, they tasted delicious, and I'm afraid they've all long gone. <laughs> now, every year I buy The Economist magazine's look ahead to what the year might bring. Last year, they changed the title from the world to the world ahead, saying the change in title better positions us for the future. As you can imagine, uh, they positioned themselves very well for the future because, uh, like everyone else, they did not imagine that 2022 would see Putin invade uh, Ukraine or three Tory prime ministers in number 10. This year, like last year, it details 10 points to look out for. One of them is that the major economies will suffer from recession. Uh, let me make two for forecasts. One is that Arsenal will win the Premier League. I have backed them on the basis that as a Tottenham supporter since I was 14, when they last won the title, I shall at least get some money. They're six to five. Sunak is seven to one to lead the Tories to victory. And I think he looks a good bet. So recession and elections, ideal territory for David and Nigel. Shall we start with you, David? Are we going to get a recession? Uh, thanks, Mihir. Um, I'm, um, I'm just about to place a bet on... Uh on Labour and Manchester City, uh, given your given your record in these in these matters. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, uh, no, I think we are um, heading for a um, a mild recession. I don't think it's going to be anything like the scale of the um, financial crisis or the pandemic, where we saw um, things really fall off a cliff for, for reasons we all know about. So. Um, so when we talk about uh, this country, we're talking about uh, a small drop in GDP, a small rise in unemployment, uh, despite you know what is obviously a, uh, a massive squeeze in terms of the cost of living, which will subside gradually over the over the year, but not not immediately. So, and some parts of the world clearly are less exposed to uh, to what's been happening in uh, Ukraine, the Russian invasion, and so on, and they the rise in energy prices than others. So this does not have as big an effect on, in North America or in uh, much of Asia. The big, the big event in Asia, I suppose, in terms of the economy is the, uh, is the Chinese slowdown. And, um, you know, financial markets at the start of this, this year can't really make up their mind whether the uh, China's abandonment of its uh, zero COVID strategy is good or bad news for the um, for the world economy. On the one hand, we should have less disruption of supply chains coming from China. On the other, it might uh, it might mean the Chinese economy is a bit stronger, which will push up uh, energy prices globally. But so a mild recession and uh, quite uneven in its impact. I think the head of the IMF said a third of the world will be in recession this year, and most of that third is is reasonably close to us here in uh, here in the UK. I think that's very interesting, David, but I, the, the, what does really intrigue me is, in this country, who is going to be 
blamed for the mild recession. Um, and I, I remember going back to the economic problems of the mid-90s when uh, we appear to be coming out of the worst of it before the uh, 97 election and uh, going around following candidates during that 97 election. I listened and the, the government, the Tory government then, was trying to blame global events for the recession and saying they'd done uh, a lot to uh, ease the problems and solve the problems. Uh, but most of the people they spoke to said, ah, no, we blame the government for the recession. And if we've sorted any of the problems out, it's due to our own efforts. And I just wonder, David, who is being blamed for the recession? Very good point. I, I think the, the run up to the 97 election is when you look at it, it's quite extraordinary because, um, of course, we had, uh, you know, Black Wednesday in September 1992 when Sterling crashed out of the ERM. And uh, we used to talk a lot to Norman Lamont, who was Chancellor at the time, about this. And he always insisted that um, the Tories, although they lost their reputation for economic competence at that point, they got it back before the, uh, before the 97 election. And uh, the run up to the 97 election was extraordinary in terms of how rapid the um, growth in um, in the economy was and the growth in uh, in real incomes you know the, the growth in uh, uh, take-home pay real take-home pay and so on and um, uh, I remember we had a uh, lunch with Michael Hesitant just before the 97 campaign got going and uh, he was insistent that no government with that kind of economic backdrop could ever lose an election and of course it, uh, it didn't quite go that way there was a, a landslide for for Labour but it was unusual and the uh, the memory stayed uh, I don't know what, what which memory stays with voters this time whether it's the the memory of Boris and the parties the memory of uh, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng or the fact that uh, you know that we've got a new a new team there uh, a team of two chancellors Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt but who are raising taxes quite substantially. So, so one thing, the tax increases get noticed, the, any, the support that the government gives has given to uh, on energy bills doesn't really get noticed. I don't think people understand that too well. So I think a lot of the blame will stay, stick with the, with the government. And I, I think they'll find it quite difficult to, uh, uh, to throw this one off in terms of uh, blaming global events, which governments always do. You know, governments, if it's bad, it's global. If it's good, it's down to us, you know, and that's the that's the standard rule of these things. David, your paper led with a story last Sunday that Sunak stood a good chance of winning because there were still undecided voters. And they used that phrase, which first came into use, as I remember it, when John Major surprised everybody by winning 1992, the shy Tories. So presumably there are still shy Tories around who haven't come out uh, of the woodwork and whether they will come out for Sunak or not, uh, one doesn't know. But but um, what's your feeling, uh, both of you, about whether the opinion polls uh, showing a 20-point lead for Labour is accurate? And of course, the other fact of 1997 is Keir Starmer is, is not remotely like Tony Blair. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, that was a, that was a good headline uh, for, the, uh, for the Sunday Times, which attracted a bit of interest. But I think the same story projected a... Uh, a 50 to 60 seat majority for uh, for Labour uh, on the basis of, of the polls. The polls at the moment are, are terrible for the Tories. I mean, it's not just the 20 point lead. It's that every single on every single measure, uh, you know, are they running the NHS well? Are they run, running the economy well? Are they doing well on 
migration, the uh, negative ratings are enormous. I think I think a little bit like John Major. I don't think people have any great animosity to uh, towards Rishi Sunak. Uh, you know, uh, the, the great danger for him is that people regard him as harmless. You know, rather than uh, rather than a great leader. So so I think it's um, it's 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 looking pretty bad for the Tories. These things can change. I mean, it was it's not that long ago. We've just passed the. Um, the third anniversary of the uh, the 2019 election, after which people said it would take a generation for Labour to get back into power. So so bad was their performance then, and uh, and the Boris Johnson with an 80 seat majority was, you know, was not quite uh, uh, prime minister for life, but he could choose uh, how long he wanted to stay. And of course, it wasn't that that long in the end. So uh, so politics can change enormously, but the 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 underlying poll readings for um, for the uh, for the Tories, even with you know, a, a fairly uncharismatic Labour leader are, um, are, are are pretty awful at the moment, uh, and uh, it will take some some recovering. And there's not that long to do it, really. It's uh, you know we are um, the rebuilding job would have to be pretty spectacular to get the Tories back into a winning position. I think that you know anything is possible, as as we saw in 2022. Yeah, you see, Mayor, it is all about my theory of electoral betting. Uh, you, the time to have had the bet on Labour was just after the 2019 election. And the, as you rightly note, the time to have a bet on the Tories now is, is, is now. And I wouldn't mind betting that you were able to get a, a pretty good price for Labour uh, winning the next election in 2019. So it is very much contracyclical. Always bet when a political party looks as if it's about to lose. Um, I, I think with the polls, I've always had, again, one rule, that if you look at the polls, you and you then go around, follow some politicians, and hear what's being said on the doorstep. And you also talk to those guys who've done lots of elections, and Michael Heseltine notwithstanding, uh, you do hear they generally have a pretty shrewd idea of what's happening. And if those three sort of factors are in alignment, then you can uh, have, be pretty certain of what's going to happen. Um, well, you did remind, you reminded me, David, of uh, when you talked about Norman Lamont, and I'm sure I've said this before, but it, it's too good not to uh, take the opportunity to say it again. I had an Amstrad um, when Norman Lamont was um, Chancellor, and it always the spell checker always changed Norman Lamont into normal lament, which I thought was a very appropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good one because uh, Andrew Neil, who was uh, editor of the Sunday Times when um, uh, Norman Lamont was Chancellor, uh, always insisted that the um, Scottish or the Ireland's pr pronunciation of uh, Lamont was lament, and um, <laughs> he. Uh, so we uh, and through that route, we were able to do a, an editorial. With a single word headline, lamentable, uh, which uh, which explains him. But, but Nigel, how how what you know? How do um, how do local voters in your neck of the woods, you know, are they because um, they, they've got the double effect there? The Tories are doing badly, but they've also had uh, Matt Hancock as uh, as MP. Has that has that had any local effect at all? Well, Matt uh, Matt Hancock is now standing down uh, the next election. So uh, I think the interesting speculation is. 
uh, who is going to replace him? Um, I, I, I read in the Times uh, a, a column which uh, well, uh, Matthew Paris was saying that uh, Boris Johnson had been seen in the bit of Derbyshire that Matthew Paris had represented many years ago because there was a 20,000 majority. And I suspect that every Tory seat in the country that has a 20,000 majority will have rumours that Boris is about to decamp <laughs> from his marginal seat to that seat. And I'm sure that West Suffolk will be no different to that. So whether uh, it is not so much whether we want to vote for Matt Hancock or his ghost, but whether we might have the prospect of voting for Boris, which is equally alarming. <laughs> So would he be the prodigal son coming to uh, coming to West Suffolk? <laughs> I I don't know that he's. I've never seen him on a race course, but I'm sure he. I mean, the, the thing about Matt Hancock was that he took part in a in, in a horse race, and uh, I think <laughs> Boris has to lose quite a lot of weight before he gets down to a um, a, a riding weight, which even the most uh, Tory backing of racehorse trainers would put him on one of their horses. Uh, but the question is, will Boris bring his dog when he comes to to Suffolk, and how will he? get on with um, um, your dog, Nigel. I mentioned your dog because a couple of weeks ago you discussed with your faithful companion, as you call your dog, the fact that both the forecasts of Leavers and Brexiteers have turned out to be wrong on the job front and on the rise of wages. We have job vacancies which cannot be filled down my road. Um, restaurants have closed because of that. Yet public sector workers uh, want more wages. The gap between the rich and the poor is growing. Food banks can Continue to grow, and uh, Nigel, tell us the issues you raised with your dog, and how how did it go? <laughs> well, uh, he agreed with me, amazingly enough, <laughs> but he he's not reliable because sometimes he turns to the right when I want to go to the left, and sometimes he goes to the left when I want to go to the right, and uh, he never goes straight ahead. Uh, but I I think the the problem with this is that it's not it's the claims and the realities made by. Uh, different sides are, are completely bizarre. You see, because uh, if you look back to the campaign, uh, Boris actually signed an article in The Sun where he said wages would go up as a result of Brexit. Um, and now, of course, the Tory government, although not one he, he's leading, are trying to suppress wages. Um, and uh, whether they've gone up or not, I leave to David to answer because I wouldn't know. But uh, the the cheerleaders for the Brexiteers like the, the Daily Express are claiming that wages have gone up. Of course, the Remainers said wages would go down, and I'm not quite certain whether they have gone down or whether they, uh, they should be going up, certainly in the public sector. It's all very confusing, and everyone is uh, twisting the evidence and twisting the facts. And uh, I, I don't know whether you, you agree with that, David, or you, you're, you're, you're one of the few dispassionate observers of what is actually happening rather than seeing the politicians spin it. Yeah, I mean, the time when uh, it was claimed that uh, wages were going up was was a time when the uh, the figures were quite distorted by uh, by the furlough scheme that we had during the pandemic because, you know, there was a, there was a while when we were comparing a period where nobody was on furlough with with a time when quite a lot of people were on furlough and only getting 80 percent of their normal normal earnings but wages are going up at the moment in cash terms of course uh, they're going up quite a lot in the private sector about you know roughly seven percent a year uh, and uh, but much less in the public sector two to three percent a year um, but in both cases they are um, they're falling in uh, in real terms so so nobody would say that uh, this is a great sort of prosperity breakthrough uh, in terms of uh, in terms of 
real wages. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of this two-year period where we're seeing the biggest fall in, in real incomes since records began in the, uh, in the mid-50s. I think the, the point you make, though, Nigel, is, is quite a good one, that, um, you know, Remainers can never admit that there's anything remotely good about Brexit. And uh, all the uh, Brexiteers can never, can never admit there's anything bad, bad about it either. So, it's, uh, so we are still stuck in, uh, you know, 2016 mode, I think. I mean, one thing that is quite interesting is that, um, uh, you know, immigration was a big issue in the referendum. And the government's um, immigration regime, of course, you know, a loss of people coming from the rest of the EU has been a big problem for um, for Mihir's local cafe and so on, who can't recruit people uh, because they're not they're not there anymore. They've, they've they went back to their own countries or stayed there, you know, when when COVID broke broke out. But the, the regime generally is is quite liberal for the rest of the world. Surprisingly liberal. It's uh, it's it's bureaucratic. It's quite hard to get people work visas. But once you've got them, you know we are seeing quite a lot of people coming from uh, from the rest of the world. And some observers who were pro Remain have taken to admitting that the uh, actually one surprise for them has been how how perhaps unintentionally liberal the uh, the, the migration regime has been. But we are still stuck in this. Um, in this uh, in this situation, I mean the the polls, as you know, show that um, if you know people have switched to um, even Brexiteers don't think Brexit is going well in the privacy of responding to a pollster. But um, you know if you had if you ran the referendum again, it would probably be a a, a Remain vote. Uh, not that we're going to going to do that. But I think the polls also uh, you know suggest that. Um, that uh, you know things have um, things have moved in a quite quite um, quite different. You know, not many people would like to have another referendum, I don't think. And but it, they also suggest that in the main, it's going to take perhaps a generation before we we get out of the the 2016 mode where you know no, no quarter is given on either side. And uh, it's a good point you make about wages, which which I think illustrates that point. You know, quite 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 well. David, talking about wages and particularly public sector wages, your colleague Robert Colville um, raised an issue in his column um, last week, uh, which took me back to the days when um, um, I edited a, edited a magazine called Pensions, um, interviewed Arthur Scargill, got Enoch Powell to review a book for me. And that is when people talked about the wonderful index-linked pensions of public sector workers. I remember when I took over Pensions magazine, Mrs. Thatcher had appointed a man called Scott to produce a report which she hoped would say that um, index-linked pensions for public sector workers should be abolished. In fact, he produced a report which said that it should be extended to private sector workers. <laughs> but isn't it the case that when we are talking about the wages of um, nurses or uh, rail workers and so on, we are missing out on the wonderful pensions they're getting, which nobody in the private sector now gets? Um it's it's a fair point. I mean, what what I always say about this. I mean, a public sector pensions have um, have been reformed. Uh, you know, since the uh, you know quite a lot since the days of Margaret Thatcher, and uh, quite a lot in the uh, you know about ten years ago. And uh, a lot of public sector schemes now are not final salary schemes, but are career average schemes, and have, have changed it for. For new entrants, so uh, they're less generous than they were. They were, but they're more generous than uh, than, as you say, most private sector pensions. I mean, we've moved from a situation where, in 1997, uh, you know, the UK had a occupational pension, company pensions, 
that were the envy of the rest of Europe to one where, you know, a lot of that has been run down. Final, final salary schemes are quite rare in the private sector now. But the point I would always make on this is that uh, it is true and it should be part of the package. And, and until recently, a lot of the disputes that you had, we didn't have that many disputes in the public sector, but a lot of them were around pension provision rather than pay. Uh, but when you've got a situation like you have now, you know, where you've got high inflation, you know, double figure inflation, small increases in pay, uh, a real squeeze on incomes, you can't, people can't live on a future pension promise, you know, even though it's part of the package. If you're squeezed now, you're squeezed, you know, it's, not, it's no use to you to think that, uh, you know, when I get to uh, whatever the retirement age is, I'm going to have a better pension than uh, than Joe down the road who works for a private firm. It's it's not something you can live on from day to day. It's something that is part of the package and uh, it, it, it matters, but uh, but it doesn't help you through a cost of living crisis at the moment. So I think it's it's a fair point, but it's not one that... And, and, the, and public sector schemes vary widely. I mean, a lot of people will retire, for example, from local government jobs with pretty poor pensions even though that is a that is a public sector scheme so it's 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 not universal you know we not everybody uh, has a kind of classic civil service mandarin gold-plated pension you know public sector pensions vary very quite widely and as i say they have been reformed what about the question of job security because my instinctive thought is that in the public sector uh, even if you're not the highest paid part of the public sector you have a lot more job security, uh, certainly than if you're working in the hospitality industry and uh, pretty well anywhere else in the private sector. It's uh, and part of the these battles that are going on at the moment in whether it's public sector or parts of the private sector that rely upon public money, and in, in other words, like like, like the, the railway industry is about job security. And if you're in the full, full in the public sector, I guess you have more job security than the private sector. And it's these sort of industries that are in the middle, which are uh, surely one of the battlegrounds. Yeah, I, I think you do. I, and, you know, one of the, one of the things is uh, when you have in the need for automation and, and uh, the need to raise productivity, as in the rail industry, whether you can... Uh, whether you can reduce the workforce by natural wastage or whether you, uh, you need to uh, introduce redundancies. But even in the public sector, it's not quite as it used to be. A lot of public sector jobs these days are, uh, are on contract. I mean, if you, if you take on, uh, you know, in many civil service roles, new civil service roles will be on an initial two-year contract. And, and they, it's, it's not like it used to be in the sense, of, you know, once you've got tenure, you're there forever. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit more like the private sector now i would say so it's not it's not it's not the old job for life you know this is not this is not japan uh it's uh, it's it's slightly different from that but is it harder to get sacked in the public sector than in the private sector i think it probably still is but it doesn't mean that doesn't happen you know it does it does happen and uh, you know you will see you will see examples of that in public sector agencies in former former nationalized industries and so on where they they do get rid of people and uh, and they do downsize what about the EU employment law? Uh, that is going to end, isn't it? Or should have ended. Uh, Rees-Mogg didn't get around to um, abolishing it. Is that right? Uh, I mean, what the government is trying to do is to, uh, is to replace EU laws with, with domestic laws. But they've, they've also 
insisted that there will be no reduction in um, those protections as they apply to to most workers. So, you know, we have to see about that. I mean, one of the things you will remember is, uh, you know, from you know, anybody who's, uh, who's written about um, finance or business uh, will have come across 2P, you know, the uh, uh, protection of employment laws when public sector organisations were privatised and when when different parts of the public sector are 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 acquired by others and so on, so I, I think it's uh, I don't think we're heading into a, a kind of wild west of um, easy sackings and so on. Uh, but one, one, but the the job market has changed. I mean, you, you know, you started this here by talking about the the fact that we've got a very tight labour market. We have got low unemployment. It will go up a bit this year. Uh, but we've also, of course, had lots of more people becoming economically inactive. In other words, deciding to drop out of the workforce, including many people, many older workers who were happily working until the pandemic came along. So, um, but along the way, we've, you know, we used to hear a lot about, for example, um, zero hours contracts, you know, uh, where, uh, you know, run by quite a lot of companies, you know, Sports Direct were famous for, for using those and, and and so were quite a lot of others, but you don't hear much about that now. So I think we've, we have switched to a situation where the ball is more in the court of the worker, the employee, rather than the, rather than the employer. There's more, there's more worker power. And, you know, the reason, and that is the symptom of that, of course, is the strikes that we're seeing. We haven't seen strikes like this for a very long time. They, they are concentrated in, in the, public sector and informal nationalised industries, which is where union power is concentrated. But um, but there, I think there has been a shift away from employer to employee uh, as a result of the um, uh, worker shortages and the, the, the tightness of the labour market. The other shift, and this is a very different shift that we really should be talking about and has struck me, is the tremendous coverage we have seen in the media over the death of Pele. Now, let me say, Pele was the greatest player I ever saw. The 1970 World Cup was absolutely the greatest I think I will ever see. Um, and and um, just to give a personal story here, the day he died, um, Sky rang me to say that they wanted me to be on the paper review to talk about it, which was very flattering that I was on a, a brief holiday. There was no computer, but my wife, Caroline, managed it very well on her telephone. Um, now, and, and I remember back in 1977, when Pele was playing for New York Cosmos and I was in Kolkata, he arrived, 100,000 people turned up at 10.30 at night at the airport to welcome him. The local government said they would repair Kolkata's road, which is a lifetime's commitment. I don't know how far that has gone since then. Um, Pele, actually, I commented on the match, Pele didn't actually do much, but his aura was amazing. But what is really amazing is that we have had double-page spreads and coverage of his funeral and what he meant and so on. But we have had very little on um, Lula, who's just become president again, or Brazil's economy. So it seems to me that sport is making us international when actually we don't cover countries in the foreign press all that much. And those countries are becoming more insular and nationalistic. I mean, look at the Qatar World Cup. We learned more about Qatar uh, during the World Cup than we've ever done. Nigel, do you see this as, as a basic change in, in the way we look at the world? Well, uh, what I would say is at least Pelé was a global celebrity and uh, the number of sort of micro celebrities who've been fighting to make themselves 
heard and distinguished over recent years. Uh, I, I, you know, I watch people on television and never heard of them. At least I have heard of Pele. Uh, but it was reassuring to know that he was a, a bit more than a, a, a bit part player in the greatest save by the greatest goalkeeper ever known. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and which is it's how Britain tended to see him. I, I, I think... Um, it, it what it, I find intriguing is that how he has been sort of elevated to a level of uh, sainthood almost, and luckily for him, I suppose he was he was around playing football and distinguished in the sixties, uh, seventies, and eighties. And incidentally, you, you mentioned Lula. Um, Pele was the minister of sport in a government of a president who actually got to power by defeating Lula in an election in the 1980s. So don't don't tell me that I haven't got a, a brain for trivia. Um, <laughs> but the other, but what I was really suggesting is that Pele actually had a quite exotic private life. Um, there were one or two sort of financial scandals, which uh, I mean. Uh, and allegations he made about other people, which in fact ended meant that he didn't attend the uh, draw for the nine in nineteen ninety four for the nineteen ninety six uh, World Cup or whichever year it was. I may have got that wrong. Um, and also, he uh, uh, reputedly set up uh, with when he was in his forties with a seventeen year old female singer. Uh, he had, and I mean, I, I think that had he been around now. We we would have probably seen more of the of the uh, uh, less um, uh, attractive sides of his celebrity, um, mm. and I, I I just wonder if 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 perhaps that is one of the reasons for changes. And yes, I, I mean I I think we the three of us all do look at uh, countries uh, uh, other than our own. But uh, you, you're right. Um, I think, but I think this is always been the case hasn't it i mean we've always yeah. been pretty insular over here and i think that, uh, that nothing no country is more parochial than the united states and uh, i i i think it's the exception uh, when we when we look globally rather than the rule yeah it, it, it's a, it's a good point i um I, uh, it was interesting the uh, the death of Pele because um i didn't see all the papers but i i did see that the times produced a special supplement uh on the uh, the day after his death which is which is quite rare you know there're not many uh, you know sh uh, short of the uh, queen of course had many special supplements there you, you've got to be somebody to have a a special supplement as opposed to just a, a long obituary uh and he had that um i think on your point about uh, the nature of foreign coverage has changed quite a lot in the sense that uh, it used to be that uh, you know, foreign pages were were full of sort of stories of changes in politics in um, in other countries and uh, quite quite heavy important stuff. But they they've become uh, over the years and are now, you know, you only really report what's happening in other countries when it is of 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 interest. In other words, something unusual has happened in a in a country. You know, there's been a there's been a disaster. There's been something as you know, some unusual event has occurred to individuals or something like that. And uh, there's a there's a uh, salacious court case or something in an, in another country. There, so high politics. Even you know, even someone like um, you know, like Lula beating Bolsonaro, it gets a bit of coverage, and it will get probably more coverage depending on what happens. Is um, he's not given the same? It's it's a bit it's a bit it's like the equivalent of um, you know, papers not 
any more reporting parliamentary debates. You know, that is that is also regarded as, as too heavy now. Politics is reported, but in a, a very different way than it, than it used to be. And I think it's the same with, with foreign affairs. I didn't realise with, uh, you know, well, the first World Cup I was aware of was, of course, the 1966 one. And um, I remember, you know, of course, England and the, uh, you know, England playing uh, Argentina and the great villain Rattan, who kicked everybody. I remember you say the, uh, the, uh, you know, the great Portuguese player. I don't I have no recollection of Pele at all in the 1966 World Cup, apart from the fact that he said subsequently he was kicked out of it and uh, to the point where he uh, he thought of giving up World Cup football at that point. I mean, you all know better than this, me here. And I also wanted to ask you whether you'd ever met him. Well, that, that was very, you know, in, 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 in 77 when I... Um, uh, commented on the match and later on one met him you know in the sense that I wouldn't say I knew him well you know you because he was always there at at events and things like that and 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 you're right uh, Nigel to say that there were aspects of his life um, shall we say um, which are best left unsaid his his support of Seb Blatter and things like that and all that sort of thing but you know as somebody has said there was Pelé the footballer and Edson um, which was his his real name you know who was a different personality once he had um, left football and and i suppose uh, to a certain extent you're absolutely right nigel what we are concentrating on is the fact that when pele played the amount of sports coverage was very limited 1970 was the first world cup which was transmitted live in color and um, whereas now there is so much football there is so much coverage of sport and we know i mean for instance we know so much more about uh, david beckham and what he gets up to and things like that and what is written about him than we would ever know about about Pelé but it has still struck me that you know we, we seem to be aching for something like this the way the story has been covered has been has been quite uh, um, incredible and and maybe this is perhaps the the new way we are going I mean the other new way we're going is is the new words that have come in I know David you in your column wrote about it but uh, before I ask you to talk about it let, let me go back to the economist forecast this year it, it has a column about new jargon now being the economist the new jargon that talks about is horizontal and vertical escala escalation. Horizontal would mean if Russia invades another country. Vertical would mean if it bombs Ukraine even more. And there is tactical and strategic use of nuclear weapons. Tactical is battlefield use. Strategic is destroying cities. I want to talk of two other words which caught my attention. This is Cam Norrie after beating Rafa Nadal in tennis the other day saying it was a sick win. And I thought the sub um, had got it wrong. He meant to say slick win. And then my wife, Caroline, who's much more up on this, says sick, it turns out, is slang for grand. And also, when people talk of sporting teams having a storied history, it means the team has a legendary past. But why are such words being used when old words were much better? I know both of you, David and Nigel, feel strongly about it. And David, as I said, you've written about this in your columns. So if you want to start us off about the use of new words that are coming in, which I don't think are much better than the old words. Yeah, I, I think you've uh, you've hit the nail on the head there. Uh, here that it's um, it's to catch people like you out who don't know the uh, <laughs> know the vocabulary. I've, been, uh, I've 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 come across sick, but I've never used it. Um, the ones I noticed uh, when I wrote about it were a perma crisis, which we're apparently in, but also this um, Oxford Dictionary's uh, word of the year, where well, it's actually two words called goblin mode, uh, and goblin mode is a uh, is when you um, you behave in a 
deliberately slovenly uh unpleasant uh slobby way and uh, again i had to, I, I didn't know that one i've never heard anybody use that one so uh, but it was obviously popular enough to win a uh, a public vote as uh, as word of the year most of these words i think disappear quite quickly it's a, it's a gimmick for the uh, for the dictionary publishers to uh, to give their words of the year at the end of the year and stick it in the dictionary after which it's um, thankfully forgotten uh, quite quickly but um, but there are many words that we uh, you know we used to use um, quite a lot um, and uh, have sadly fallen into uh, into disrepute. And the one I picked out was, um, which was from a, um, a Times football report describing the new uh, Wolves manager as um, as wearing a, a sweater and slacks. And uh, <laughs> slacks are re- very rarely used these days to to mean uh, men's uh, below the waist garments. So I uh, I was very pleased to see that one making a comeback. I'm trying to encourage it uh, very much. Um, Nigel, are you wearing slacks at the moment? Uh, I, I'm wearing something red, but I'm not quite certain whether it identifies itself as slacks, trousers, or or goblin mode. Uh, it seems to me goblin mode was designed specifically to fit Boris Johnson, who is a <laughs> goblin mode made flesh. I'm actually—I I mean, I, I do understand the, the these these sort of silly words which come for a, a few years, then probably disappear again. What actually has always concerned me a lot more is the way in which managers, senior managers, uh, corporate executives use jargon when they're deliberately trying to distance us, the rest of us, from an understanding of what they're saying. It's a sort of, it's an exclusive use of language. And I think that's, as a long-term problem, is much more dangerous. And my other obsession is, of course, it's not to do with the words themselves, but the way in which they're used, in that it is the use of the passive voice. Um, and you can actually uh, dissemble very easily with the passive voice. You say, it was decided. If you say it was decided, you don't have to say who took the decision. And you see corporate executives doing this at all. And they, they, they will, uh, I, I can't off the top of my head think of specific words, but they are, that they are, they, they use this language on, on the television and radio and they try to confuse us with it and i think that's very dangerous yeah no i think that's a very good point uh, uh, you know something like an apology is in order you know something like that rather than <laughs> you know we are sorry is uh, is a good yes. example of that no, i i find this is and and it's uh, the, the spread of that sort of um you know kind of pseudo business school language around and into all sorts of professions now people people speak in a way that is is almost designed not to be understood, I think. And if, uh, so I, I think you're right to point that out. And uh, it's horrible to listen to, and, um, it is, but I think it is catching. And it's, it's probably more important than, um, you know, than odd, odd gimmicky words like sick and goblin mode. The, uh, the, the, the takeover of, you know, in the corporate world, in the public sector, in the health service, in um, social workers, the use of a kind of, a kind of, difficult to understand almost incomprehensible language has just become the norm now i think and it's it is quite disturbing 
Yeah, I mean, the, the word used often, culture wars, I think, is, you know, trying to sort of disguise what is being discussed. But uh, finally, I think let's come to the still. I mean, you know, we just um, um, passed the Christmas season, Christmas presents. Uh, I must say, um, my wife and I have received delicious chocolates and biscuits, which both of us on receiving them have said, oh, no, more sugar bad. But they have gone. They've been consumed. And from my daughter, a wonderful book by Amitav Ghosh, uh, Nigel and David, have presents been bad sugar or made you all, both of you, even more of an intellectual than you are? And, and which do you prefer? Well, I always have, uh, somebody always buys me, and it was my mother-in-law bought me a bottle of um, Welsh whiskey, which is which is very good, uh, the um, Welsh malt whiskey, so I recommend that. And uh, my wife, among other things, uh, my dear wife always buys me the Rupert Annual, and um, uh, I, I used to be quite scared of Rupert and the uh, stories of Rupert and his friends when I was younger, but uh, but I've had the um, the Rupert annual for um, for the last um, twenty five years, so I've got quite a collection of those. But um, and uh, I haven't got around to reading it. And I've got, as you all know, if you're a Rupert aficionado, you can either read the short version, uh, which is just in rhyme, or the longer version, which is the uh, the prose as well and uh, and both are, are usually equally good but they are, they're still a bit scary but Nigel I think you had a serious book uh, for for Christmas well your fear of Rupert explains why you never worked for the Daily Express which used to <laughs> cover, <laughs> carry a Rupert column every day now I, I, I my, my uh, Christmas presents never go beyond the letter B it's either booze or books um but I had a wonderful, wonderful book this Christmas uh, by uh, Dr. Claire Jackson, a uh, Cambridge uh, doctor of, of history, on uh, Stuart uh, history. And but it 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 sort of shows how the uh, rest of Europe and the other great powers regarded us. And there are some actually some some things that were said which have a strong resonance today. Um, this, for example, uh, was. Uh, from someone who said, no nation in Europe is more haughty and disdainful, nor more conceited in an opinion of its superior excellence than England. It's incli they're inclined to ad adore all their own opinions and despise those of every other nation. Um, they, they had contracted all the instability of the element by which they are surrounded, namely water. Um, and uh, the, the, the English were described as a nest of vipers a den of thieves and a ditch and cesspit of poisonous and noxious vapours. Uh, and this is the best one, I think. 17th century England was a failed state, a discomforting byword for seditious rebellion, religious extremism and regime change. Nothing's changed in 400 years, really, has it? That sounds very good, Nigel. I, uh, but you make a very good point about, you know, the, my choice of employer. I, you know, for a long time, uh, when, uh, when I started working for The Times and... Uh, and people used to start uh, talking about Rupert. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I always first thought of the uh, the little bear in uh, in red jumper and uh, yellow checked trousers before realizing they were talking about Rupert Murdoch. And uh, I still uh, I still have to adjust slightly to that uh, uh, to this day. 
talking of the Daily Express, I remember when I started at the Sunday Times, um, the older um, hacks there said that um, the Daily Express was the paper they all wanted to work for. And, you know, they when they came down from the provinces, which is hard to believe now. But, um, uh, David, surely your team Wolves will do much better. And I remember the story vividly, you telling me fairly early on when we uh, when when I joined Financial Weekly, that uh, on, on the Christmas presents when you were growing, up was um, gloves that were given to men and they wore the gloves and went to see Wolves play, I think, on, on Christmas Day. So, I mean, yes. isn't that what we need to go back to? Uh, you being given presents of gloves and, and going to, to Molyneux? Uh, well, as long as it, they come with a, um, a bobble hat and, uh, and a rattle uh, mm. to shake. Um, do you ever have a rattle, Nigel? Not, not a no, rattle. I never had a rattle, but, but I was going to, not, not, not that I remember anyway, but I, I was going to ask me here when he, uh, uh, how many times this year he expects uh, Spurs to score first in a match and then win the match? Well, um, I don't expect them to score first at all. Uh, They're going to play Crystal Palace. In fact, uh, um, I've gone into the situation where I'm backing Crystal Palace to win so that I, I can still get some money if, um, um, at, the, at, the, at the end of the match. But uh, um, there you are. You know, I mean, with Spurs, if you, if you, if you fall in love with the team um, because it has won, uh, then it doesn't win again. It's, it's very difficult to, to, to sort of hate them you only go through a period of misery. And at this point in time, the misery is greater than it has been for a long time. Do you blame the owners or the managers? Um, I think I think one one has to blame both the owners. I mean, you know, they they're competing in a market where you know the Saudis have come in, the other rich owners have come in. They, they can't spend that much money, and also I think the manager. I mean, if a team um, can't perform in the first half but performs in the second half, there's something wrong with the management style there. I don't quite know what the management style or what the instructions are, but certainly there's something wrong there. Um, but uh, with that, hopefully Spurs will win. With that, let's come to the end of this our first twenty twenty. 23 podcast, uh, David and Nigel, um, is there still some Christmas pudding left for, for you all to consume? Um, there is, um, uh, and um, I'm not sure when it's, I think it will last till next Christmas, but uh, but anyway, uh, but that was very enjoyable, me here, and um, thanks, uh, I'm still full of Christmas cheer, so um, let's hope we, it's going to be a good year, um, and um, I'm always optimistic, people, people, most of the emails I get from readers uh, say to me, um, don't be so miserable. And I say, well, I'm a natural optimist. You know, you're so, so <laughs> if I if I really wanted to be miserable, I could be. Uh, I could be much more miserable than I am. But, uh, but let's hope for a good year. Well, I can only endorse that. And uh, if uh, I've still got plenty of Christmas whiskey left, so <laughs> uh, I, because I, 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 one of the benefits of, of, of having a birthday in December is that you get two uh, goes at the alcohol gift. And so I've got enough whiskey to keep me going at least until mid-January. Well, we've still got some Christmas chocolates and um, the question is, can we resist them? Anyway, we hope you've enjoyed our podcast. Do please write to us, 3 old hacks at outlook.com.